flown. I have sailed. I have moved about this world of ours. And ever in search of the finest of its kind, we bring you the tops in Audio Drama Networks. This is Mutual. The following audio drama is rated PG-13, suggesting that all children under the age of 13 should listen accompanied with an adult. Chapter 21 Of Poopsmiths and Pariahs Molly's journey from the bloody floor of a motel room to the down-under of H.G. World was generally uneventful. When I say uneventful, I mean that she had to navigate the same horrors and risks we've all endured out on the road. Her beating left her with a swollen eye and a ringing in her left ear. She knew she wouldn't make it far on foot with a twisted ankle and all the bruising along her arms and legs that made any movement burn across her body. The eaters began darkening the window and scraping across the threshold with more frequency and remaining longer. Molly could hear them forcing through the brush and garbage behind the motel room, probably lured by the sound of running water or the smell of her blood through the open vent above the bathroom window. Staying gave her no chance at all. Eventually, she pictured a mob outside crashing through to get at her. With this image in her mind, Molly fought through the pain and that nagging urge to lie down and sleep. She opened the bathroom vent wider and turned on the shower. It had the desired effect. The eater couldn't get through the vent seven feet above unstable ground, but the smell and the sound drove them crazy. Their growls and moans summoned others away from the front. Waiting until the front door cleared, she headed off in the direction that seemed safest as quickly as her aching legs carried her. She mentioned a steady breeze that had the benefit of masking her scent as downwind was behind her most of the time as she walked. At least she could keep ahead of the walkers chasing her. Her mind was on the road ahead and not on time or distance. Sometime into an uneventful walk, she came across a gray Honda sedan parked facing north in the southbound lane. The trunk was open, as was the driver door. The warning chime was strong, indicating that the car had power and, more importantly, the keys were in the ignition. Part of the driver, his lower half, remained wedged between the door and the frame. The rest of him was missing, but everything from the waist up minus a chunk of flesh and a gallon of blood, lay in a trail leading into the woods off to the side of the road. Part of him smeared across the front of a dead eater slumped against a guardrail ten feet away. A nine-millimeter automatic lay on the ground just by the car. She took the gun and the man's shoes, left the legs for the eaters she heard trampling back from the trees, and drove away on a half-tank of gas. Traveling southeast, Molly began to notice survival tags on billboards and signs. Survivors would spray paint warnings wherever they could, using symbols wherever possible like church-run road with a skull and crossbones next to it, or Meadville Airport in the middle of a circle with a line cutting through it. One of these was scrawled in red spray paint across a T.G. Applebuster's billboard, and it read, Listen 580 AM. After about 30 minutes of listening to 50s doo-wop, she was about to turn off the radio when she heard a two-pack-a-day voice growl. Good morning, survivors! 
I've heard Todd rage on the AM station, and between old man stories and discussions of his last bowel movement, he does provide some quality intel about Eater Herd's quote official end quote information from the shredded pieces of what he claims is the U.S. government. He has people on the field scavenging for food, reaching out to survivors, and, until it closed down completely, guiding people to HG World for safety. Molly followed that voice and noticed signs directing her off the main road, avoiding several infected and blocked areas to an access road where she joined a queue of survivors in a line up the hill to the same intake station that I passed through. According to her timetable, we arrived within a few days of each other. Part 2 I slept until someone pounded on her door and scared us both awake. I had no idea how much time had passed, though I felt I had just nodded off. Molly jumped out of bed. The pounding apparently identified the caller because Molly growled, Okay, Gary. Jesus, I'm coming. A hushed conversation took place at the door while I tried to get my bearings again. Whatever it was had Molly irritated and changing into thermal coveralls she had stowed in a drawer. Something about her conversation with Gary changed her mood completely, and it was as if I wasn't there. Without any explanation, she focused on getting dressed quickly and had this look of concern that I guess was a sort of game face. This Gary stood outside, staring in through the crack in the door at an angle he could see both of us. He could see I was in Molly's bed. I said nothing, but my skin crawled as I felt him watching us. Why didn't Molly shut the door? Coveralls, work boots, and work gloves. She turned toward the door. If she spun the other direction, I wonder if she would have remembered me being there at all, but I passed through her field of vision. Chilly. She smiled, barely masking the surprise on her face. Work emergency. Stay here. Make yourself comp for whatever. I'll be back soon. What's going on? Her eyes shifted in Gary's direction with a look I took for, can't talk now. She stomped off toward the door and the two left. I distinctly heard the click of a lock. From the outside. If you've learned anything about me by now, it's that I don't like being left out of something. My only conflict was the opportunity to go snooping through Molly's room. Not creeping on her so much, but to learn more about what she does, what the down under does. My assumptions about the situation were pretty standard. The world around me is controlled. Confirming I was locked in also confirmed that the room itself was deemed safe for my consumption. It wasn't likely there would be any clues there beyond what Paul Handsome wanted me to find. Everything I found helped me to flavor my account of Molly's journey to HG World. I also assumed that Paul expected me to use a ballpoint pen to foil the cheap door lock and venture out into the hall. If they really wanted me to stay put, there would have been a guard outside. I imagined Paul Handsome watching a video monitor, clicking between the small webcams set up in the suspended ceiling along the maze of passages making up the FEMA section of the Down Under. I imagined this place full of bureaucrats, dozens of people working to process the paperwork at the end of civilization, documenting people and conditions, doing all the things cube jockeys do to keep the wheels of government turning. The Bureau of Refugee Relocation, 
the Office of Land Reclamation and Disposition, the Center for Human Capital Excellence, the Office of Property Acquisition and Restoration, a.k.a. the National Lost and Found. All these proud-sounding particle board cube farms designed to manage a crisis of exodus proportions were silent, empty, and dark. They never even got started. Office chairs covered in plastic pumped up against empty desks with unused computer workstations. There was no sign of the usual office swag you'd find. There was no sign of a poster with a cat hanging off a tree limb hanging on till Friday. No photocopy of a cartoon man laughing as he asks, you want it when? No bobbleheads or family pictures in frames. No terrible towels, no water in the cooler, no mess in the microwave, no passive-aggressive threat to whoever was dumping their coffee dregs into the water fountain in the hall. Nothing but dust and mouse droppings and the feeling of surrender. A closet filled with unused laptops, blackberries and projectors, batteries, chargers, one for every man, woman, and Jebediah living in H.G. World. Down further, a gym with new equipment, still covered in plastic. The showers beyond it were open and had the look and smell of being used recently, though I can't vouch for how recently they'd been cleaned. The walls of the gym were glass with masking tape crossing each pane. The glass double doors were locked. A door connecting it to the next section was unlocked, and another corridor extended into darkness in the opposite direction. On the other side of the section door, I walked into something that reminded me of Overt Hall, a co-ed dormitory back at Center University. There was even a window at the end of the hall radiating bright sunshine. Even from a distance, I was pretty sure the window was just another white light box, but I felt my mood lift immediately. It was a dorm block, if I'd ever seen one. Several doors extending the length of the hall, each uniquely adorned with colorful posters and post-its, doodles and scribbles on paper taped to them. As I walked the length, I felt at home. Through the doors, I could hear music played softly and muffled conversations. Even though it was inevitable that one of these twenty doors might open at any time, I felt drawn into this place, and I was confident I could explain away my presence with natural curiosity, introduce myself to the Carla and Maud living in room SB-114, and maybe even fold myself up into a beanbag chair, find some cheesy snacks, and shoot the shit while sneaking a little vodka into our cans of Fanta. Jonah and Mikey from SB-170 could bring a guitar over, and we could turn on our electric candles and talk about Benny in SB-121, or Althea in SB-127, or... The smile on my face and the spring in my step took Gil from SB-128 off guard as he exited his dorm room. He was decidedly not of college age. In his navy blue coveralls, he looked like the dorm superintendent, and the look on his face was like a man caught snooping through a girl's room. I stopped in my tracks, as did he. He asked the obvious questions, and I answered, I'm Jilly Woodbine. I'm just looking around my new neighborhood. Gil looked me over as if taking inventory. You're new. Lover man. You shouldn't be in here. Why not? I didn't see any signs. Do you know your way around? Not really. That's kind of why I'm exploring. 
He seemed to be anxious to get somewhere as he explained, There are places you shouldn't just explore. Some doors need to stay closed, right? What's that mean? Open the wrong door and you'll find out. He had on the same coverall and boots ensemble Molly took to work, along with a utility belt holding an odd assortment of tools, radio, and a hard hat under his arm. He also had the same kind of concerned expression. What's going on? Everybody seems tense. Go back to where you came from. I gotta get to it. With that, he jogged on down the hall, dangling tools slapping against his saggy backside as he went. He made a left at the box light, his footfalls continuing until he passed through a sectional door. I checked out his door. He lived alone. Gilbert D. Stern, a.k.a. Sterno, a.k.a. Poopsmith. His handwritten name tag on the door was bookended by a picture of the shit monster from the movie Dogma and the Poopsmith from that old Homestar Runner cartoon. I walked to the corner where Sterno disappeared and peeked around. I couldn't see much there through the little square window in the connector door, but the light was harsh and inconsistent, the start of a dying fluorescent in the ceiling. The webcam in the corner over the door caught me peeking. A little red light blinked on which called my attention to it. Turning back to the dorm hallway, I noticed three other red lights on the cameras. The thought crossed my mind that even though someone was spying, he or she or they were upfront about it. The door to SB-131 opened, and the grotesque ceramic crucifix hanging from the doorplate bounced and clunked against the wood. A large woman of about sixty hard-lived years, Penguin walked into the hall, covered in something that might have once been a gray tracksuit. Her eyes were the color of a cigarette stain, and I made the comparison judging the ones on her own fingers. The room smelled like a museum to venerated ashtrays. Behind her, inside the frame set by the doorway, the word Jesus appeared in six-foot spray-painted letters on the opposite wall. Where are you up to, girl? I couldn't get my brain around the sentence, so I chose to simply enjoy the fact that she sounded like the old lady gangster in the Goonies and waited for her to speak again. When she did, a little giddy schoolgirl clap rose up from my tummy. It was so adorable. I say, where are you up to now? Where are you going? Exploring, I said. I didn't want to fully answer the question. The way her lips flapped loose when she talked made the croaking more entertaining. I don't know what it was about her, but she was stinky, disgusting, and adorable in one blobular package. You new girl they brung in, ain't ya? Yes, ma'am, I responded as her right eye widened. I expected her to warn me not to leave the moors or tempt the gypsy's curse. Instead, she offered me a down-home, down-under greeting. Get out of here, you carpet ragger. See, even her homophobia was adorable. Don't want you round. Get me behind Jeebus with your hard girlfriend. Put the Jeebus inside you. Sorry, <laughs> I'm not laughing at you. You're just... I want to eat you up. You're so quaint, but I think I'd get cancer. You need a man. A good man. Hey, Jeebus, a good man will make you see God. You need to make babies. No time for fooling and shenanigans, missy. We needs to be making with the babies. Okay, then, 
I replied. I'll get right on that. How's it going for you? Sass it up. She puttered and tried her words again. Sass it up. I'll sass from the up top where they sit up around all day in the sunshine. Jeebus will spank some sense into you. She underscored her point with a severe nod that looked more like she was headbutting the air in front of her. Greasy hair bloomed like... like a tortured simile. Her neck rippled like a water balloon in flight. Changing the subject, I pointed to the camera. What's going on? It's bubbling up for you, girl. Judgment coming for the unclean and the wicked. It's coming for you, and all the rest of us gotta go along with you. God's word. God's word. I tried to steer the subject away from my vagina, its occupants, and my satanic origins. Those little red lights on the cameras, what do they mean? It means you gotta knock off the gay and make it with Jeebus. Be a real woman and get thee to stud. Now, before judgment casts the last of us into that lake of fire. Obviously, Jesus was our security officer. So, because I was chatting with a crazy lady, I thought I'd practice my fluency in her language. Uh, Where can I get a pack of pork rinds and a pack of smokes? I'll get right to work on my flabby abs and asthma too, you weirdy. As part of her careful and measured response, she took a step back, pointed at me, and began chanting, Dyke. I should have been upset, but I just felt sad. For her, of course. At about the ninth time she chanted the word at me, Carsagina retreated into the smoking Jesus suite. The door slammed and slapped around poor dying Jesus on its string. I stared at the hand-painted effigy of Christ on the cross, his face crossed in acrylic tears and blood, and I sympathized. I can't believe the crap you gotta put up with. Turning back to the door where Sterno had run, I considered following him. When the door opened, I expected the master poopsmith. Instead, it was Paul Handsome, his wicked-looking half-smile, and a long stick that made lightning at the end. Let's show you everything, Woodbine. I think you're ready. Chapter 22 The Grindstone of Pain and Necessity Paul stood in front of me, waiting for a smart-ass remark that never came or a question he could give some spooky fortune-cookie answer to. The red lights on the cameras told me we were still being watched, and the air of urgency in the staff suggested something bad was happening. Where did Molly and Gil go in such a hurry? Is there anything wrong? Paul smiled. On a relative scale? Nah. Sometimes wildlife gets into the sewer tunnels and we have to clear it out. Dear refugees eaters. Sometimes a bear or weird weasels. Normally, we'd just flush them with water from the river, but for some reason, the intake pipes leading from the Forsyth River are clogged with corpses. Something about the end of the world. We're hoping the EPA gets on top of that soon. Anyway, curious one... Wait, don't we 
drink from the Forsyth River and bathe in it? It's a good thing you have people like me and Molly and Sterno down here making sure the filters are operating correctly and that the solar panels that power the filters are functional. Otherwise, yeah, you'd be showering in human soup. You think that group of useless consumers up top there would have lived more than a month without us? We continued talking as he led me back up the dormitory corridor, turning right where I'd come left at the next intersection. Why don't you just tell the people who you are and what you're doing? Paul coughed. Because I hate people. Well, that's a personal reason. I think your moral outrage at keeping an undead baby and mother under observation would be representative of people upstairs, don't you? Besides, it's better if the people upstairs don't mess with what we do down here and enjoy their blissful ignorance. We have supplies that we ration out. We keep emergency stores that even the mayor and Jack don't know about. When the sheep turn into rams and try to take down the managers, it will be over scraps and not the FEMA CDC stores we have down here. You expect HG World to have a revolution? Actually, I expect Jeb to do something really stupid. I expect Jack to get caught with his dick in a bad choice. It might have something to do with Hank. Those three are the president, VP, and secretary of that shitocracy upstairs. If not them, David will be the grand prize winner. You know, I'm surprised you didn't bring David along with you. I didn't know what side he was on. He's one to protect himself. Yeah, you got a good read on him. Anywho, I thought I'd take you on a quick tour of the job I'd like you to do for us down here. That is, if you're done snooping around the catacombs. I managed an awkward laugh that fell somewhere between polite and bluntly insincere. Paul didn't respond to it and kept an eye on the passage in front of us. The trouble with our mission is that we really don't know how much of the world outside is worth saving. That is, if it can be saved. Most of the survivors are crafty assholes like me. If you count the asshole up there in the land of make-believe as exceptions, what you get outside these walls are folks like us. We believe in work hard or fuck off and die. Use a skill or get one. We don't need shoe salesmen or busboys or kids who are awesome on an Xbox. We need strong backs and strong minds. If you're a sensitive artist, you better be six foot fucking three with a good batting arm or you're worthless as shit to me. That's kind of the point I'm getting around to with you, Woodbine. You're smart. You're a pain in the ass. I see you as a liability to my operation, but I also see you as capable to think a situation through and making hard but good decisions for the future of our camp. Any of that makes sense? I nodded, then realized we were in a dimly lit corridor. Yeah, Paul. I get that you have a lot of power down here. It also sounds like you resent the people upstairs a bit much. They are survivors. That's the human race up there, isn't it? Sheep. Mouths to be fed and asses to be wiped. We protect them because of some twisted hope that this might all get better someday and we can all go somewhere. Home. A new home, maybe rebuild Wishwell or some stupid shit. Put up statues to Todd Rage and the Happy Valley Militia while the Morlocks like me become footnotes. You're in it for the glory? 
I guess you backed the wrong pony, Mr. Handsome. No. I signed on to help people escape and recover from disaster. I lived in New Orleans until about 2006. I had a house in St. Bernard's Parish, a studio on Bourbon Street, and one of the most amazing collections of blues and jazz recordings. My whole life, preserving the original blues sounds, recording the masters and finding relics. Anything to keep it from going extinct, you know. And then a week before my biggest fundraiser and concert, that bitch Katrina came up the gulf. Wiped me out, my house, my collection. I lost three awesome cats. Lady Blue, Mazzy, and Snatch. You know, never mind the news media, but in my neighborhood, people couldn't get out of town. They were poor folks with roots so deep you couldn't move them with dynamite. They had nowhere to go and no way to get there, so they stayed thinking they could protect the only shit they owned in the world from scumbags in town taking advantage of the situation. Of course, instead of sending buses, the military sent guns and tanks. They either forced you out or blocked you in. While I was trying to put my shit into my van for the trip out of town, the National Guard showed up in a school bus, pointed rifles at me, and left all my shit out in the open while I joined other prisoners to spend three days at the Superdome. That's along with 10,000 of my neighbors through 200-mile-an-hour winds, no toilets, and a carnival of human insanity I decided should never repeat itself here in the greatest fucking country in the world. Shame on us for being unprepared. And I mean the people and the government. I watched executions, and I watched corpses pile up in a stairwell. I only know I was there three days because I was alive to look at a calendar after it all. I came out of the Superdome covered in other people's shit and blood. I broke my nose against some asshole's fist when he decided to try to take some cat's baby formula for himself. FEMA greeted me with a goddamn fire hose. Before anyone had a chance to talk to the media, we were put on a bus and gift baskets and shipped to Houston, Texas. You were what, 13? I'm sure it was a tragic little reality show for you back then. Hey, I tried to help. I sent you some canned goods through my school. You never got them? I even wrote you a little card hoping you'd get better. Oh, yeah. That was you? Thanks. Baked beans? Canned fruit. Didn't want you to get scurvy on top of everything else. Ah, uh, thoughtful kid. Maybe that's what inspired me to give it all up, finish my degree, and go to work for FEMA. So we could build places like this designed to help people instead of shoving them into big metal thunderdomes. So why are you so angry about it then? It's the scope of the thing. When you study extinction-level events, you think it will all blow over, and when the planet gets hit by God's dick or Captain Trips wipes us all out, we can rebuild. But this shit? This is a game-changer. I don't see the residents of HD World surviving, especially after I get done showing you what you need to see next. Chauncey Haworth, Mark Slade, and Lothar Tuppen. 
the demented minds behind the Twisted Pulp Radio Hour bring you Twisted Pulp Magazine, a journey beyond surreality to worlds you never knew or hoped existed, worlds of the supernatural, worlds of dark satire, worlds of nightmarish futures. Twisted Pulp Magazine. If you thought the 21st century was weird enough already, think again. Twisted Pulp Magazine. A step beyond your grandfather's pulp. Available at digitalvaudeville.com. That's D I G I T A L V A U D E V I L L E.com. 